You know, every family has stories that become part of the folklore of the family. And some of these stories are even rooted in truth, but, but every family has these stories that happen that people tell over time, and, and our family is no different. One of the stories that my mom tells, I don't personally remember, but I will tell you before I share it with you that it does have the ring of authenticity to it. As my mom tells this story, I was about four or five years old. We were in Houston where I grew up, and I had been cooped up inside all day because of Houston thunderstorms outside, and apparently, I had taken to my room and absolutely destroyed everything within sight. I pulled out every Lego that I had, left it in the middle of the floor. Every piece of clothing that I had in my chest of drawers, I tried on and left it on the bed. My mom said that she began to get nervous when she realized she hadn't heard from me in too long. Kind of like being in the woods or the forest when, there's, when it gets really quiet. She said, I started to get nervous when I didn't know where you were and I hadn't seen you for some period of time. And as she tells this story, she came into my room as I was in my closet where I had started with the low-hanging fruit and all of the games and toys I could reach. And I was reaching for the last thing that I could reach at the highest level in my closet when my mom walked in and I just knew that I was in trouble. I didn't know, I don't know how I knew, but I knew, you know? And my mom says that I turned to her and I made the international symbol for stop to her and I turned away from her and I said, don't come, don't tell me things. <laughs> now, that has the ring of authenticity to it. I, that sounds like what a five-year-old would say to a loving parent who loves that child too much to sit idly by and watch him destroy his domain. And so I, I believe that the story is actually true. But I also believe this. I think that that story that my mom loves to tell about when I was a young boy in Houston may be the clearest, maybe the most enlightening illustration of one of the most crucial elements of grace that you will ever hear. And I tell you that I think it's so clear and so enlightening, not because it happened to me or because I'm telling you the story, but I think that story captures an absolutely necessary, non-negotiable nuance of grace that we have to get our minds around. Now, yes, grace is amazing. Yes, grace is that unearnable, unmerited favor of a perfect, holy, and righteous God poured out extravagantly on decidedly unholy, imperfect people like you and me. And if grace is to be truly grace, then grace must tell the truth. Grace has to tell the truth if it's going to actually be grace. I want you to turn to your neighbor, whether you're in the room or online, and tell him, tell the truth. Now, grace and truth have, have a long-standing kind of contentious relationship. Grace and truth have, have this, it's a tough thing to be. It's kind of like when you love someone and they ask you, is this, is this outfit flattering on me? 
the answer is not always, you betcha. Sometimes the answer is, eh, not so much. But when you love someone, you have to decide how are you going to express the truth while maintaining the relationship with somebody. Help me preach. I'm just saying. Well, grace has to tell the truth. And today as we continue this series that we very cleverly entitled Grace, period. That's it. That's just the name of it. We have to get into this reality that grace tells the truth. And to get there, I want to look at Ephesians chapter number four. Ephesians chapter four, the apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and he's explaining to them how God has, has ordered the church. He says in the verses before I'm getting ready to read here, he says that God in his grace has given to the church Apostles, those are people who start churches. He's given apostles, evangelists, people who share the good news of Christ. He's given teachers and pastors. And that of these folks that God has given to the church, their job, my job, is to build up the church, to equip the church to do everything that God has called us to do, to be strong and mature in Christ, to be more like Christ all the time. But right after giving pastors and teachers and evangelists our job description, he goes on to say that there are a couple of implications. There are a couple of things that will be evident in the church, through the church, if the pastors and teachers and evangelists are actually doing their job. He says, if you think about it, if we're trying to build up the body of Christ, then a pastor's job is basically a personal trainer for the church. It's our job to get the church healthy, to get the church mature, to equip and and to bring them along, which also means, by the way, that sometimes we kind of have to push. You know, if how many of you have ever had a trainer? You've ever been to a gym and worked out with somebody that that you've used to help you get in better shape? Well, a, a great trainer never looks at you and goes, man, you're perfect. Just as it, I wouldn't change a thing about you. You don't even need to be here. Go on home. No, 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 no. A great personal trainer will push us beyond our comfort zone. A great personal trainer will say, hey, listen, you're awesome. And we've all got opportunities for improvement. We've all got the opportunity to be healthier, stronger, better, more mature physically. And this is what God is trying to do spiritually in the church through this understanding of grace. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter four, verses 14 through 15. The Bible says that when the church is mature, when the church is strong and healthy, verse 14, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. We will speak the truth in love. We will speak the truth in love. Isn't that just a breath of fresh air? I mean, isn't that just an amazing, just just a concept? Think about the world that we live in. Forget Ephesus for a second. Speaking the truth in love. Man, can we all just agree as a church family that that's going to be who we are? 
That, that from, from this moment forward, no matter what, we will speak the truth in love. We will tweet the truth in love. We will post to Facebook and Instagram in love. Somebody ought to get excited about that. Somebody. That we will be known as people of grace and truth. That we will speak the truth in love. Now, the truth and love are really, really important. When we, when we talk about the truth, we, we have to understand that God, in grace, has given us the truth. He's given us the truth in the person of Jesus. Remember, we talked about true north. He is the one that we follow. We fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. But he's also given us the truth biblically. He, he's shown us his truth in the Bible. And so as long as we choose to ingest the Bible spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, personally, relationally, then we will live and operate out of the truth of God in a way that makes everything else pale in comparison. When we hide the word of God in our minds and in our hearts, the Bible says that we, we make it a part of who we are, we spiritually metabolize it, then we will no longer be like immature children. Man, are there some new winds blowing in this world of teaching? Are there, has anybody heard recently maybe some clever lies that sound good but are not? The only way that we discern truth from non-truth, reality from unreality, is the word of God. That's why, again, I want to plead with you. Be so, so careful. When you hear somebody say, I'm going to just tell you my truth, or I'm, I'm going to live my truth, be so careful because the reality is we are created in the image of God to live his truth. Part of the job description of God is to be the author and the arbiter of what is true and what is not. It isn't my job. It's not your job to decide what is true based on how we feel in any given moment or day. But it is our job to understand reality as God has created reality. He is the arbiter of truth. He is the one. So when we begin to live in that truth, here's something else that happens. We begin to experience the peace that passes all understanding. Because when we understand the truth of God, when we are living it out, we, we, we're no longer blown about by every new wind of teaching. We're no longer freaked out by every headline that comes along. We understand the truth of the matter is we live in a fallen world, but God wins. God has already determined the outcome when Jesus rose from the dead. He wins in the end. Tell your neighbor right now, don't freak out. Don't freak out. So we... we speak the truth. We know the truth, but we speak it in love. We, we always come from a position of loving other people, of loving God. And so we have to learn, again, like I said, there's this, there's this constant congenital conflict in our lives between truth and love. We're, we're, we're always kind of like some, and, and I think this is true for most of us, most people, just personality-wise, the way that you're wired up, most of us drift or tend one way or the other. Some of you are truth people. 
Some of you are truth people, and when I used the example earlier, when I said, you know, somebody in your family says, does this, you know, is this outfit flattering? Maybe, maybe the husband saying, are these slacks, these slacks feel like they're a little, they're cut differently. Like, no, honey, you've put on 15 pounds because of COVID. The reality is some of you drift and lean towards truth. You think, well, if I'm going to love someone, I'm going to tell them the truth. I'm like, no, honey, you, you've gotten big during COVID. You, you need to drop a few. That may be true, but that's not the most loving way to share the news. By the same token, some of us kind of drift towards love and, and grace. And, and we're like, oh no, I would never say, I would tell them if they put on 150 pounds of chicken fried steak, you look awesome. That's not exactly loving to tell somebody something that's not true. You see, we've got this, this constant conflict and God in his amazing grace resolves this conflict perfectly. And by the way, only in the person of Jesus Christ. It is only in Jesus that this conflict is resolved. And so we have to, we have to understand some things about who God is, about how he operates. It's, it's, this, it's reason number 9,432,878 why theology matters. Doctrine matters. When I say theology, that just means your, your God thoughts. That means what you think about God, what I think about God, what we really believe, because that determines what we actually do, every single one of us. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to look in Romans chapter three. In Romans 3, 23, God gives us one of those foundational statements to the faith. To, to what it means to be a follower of Christ. Romans chapter three, verse 23, says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that, that's, a, that's a universal truth for every person who has ever walked the face of the earth except the son of God himself, Jesus. You've sinned, I've sinned, all God's children have sinned. We, that's just part of it. As a matter of fact, the word sin, this is almost a, a tongue-in-cheek redundancy in Romans 3 because the word sin is actually an archery term. It means that you have missed the target. So when it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we've all sinned, we've all shot our shot, but not hit the target. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then he goes on to explain the true nature of grace and the good news of Christ. Watch this. Verse 24 and following. Now all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, his patience, he had left the sins of the world committed beforehand, before Jesus, unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Grace tells the truth. For grace to be truly and biblically grace, 
Grace is, is not just some kind of saccharine sentiment that is created by a doormat deity designed to fit our desires and whims. Grace, grace is much stronger, much sturdier, much, much tougher than that. Grace is not like just kind of a, a nice little wink from a kindly old grandpa who, who says, you know what, all that stuff about righteousness and the justice of God and the perfection of God, don't worry about it. You just, come on in, you, you try, don't, don't, don't sweat it. That's not grace. In its purest, most biblical form, grace has some gristle to it. Grace has some strength and some toughness. It has some, some tensile strength, if you will. Because grace is the most dearly bought, most hard-won gift that has ever been given in this world. I want to look at that verse in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 26. It says that we are justified freely by grace. The, the word justified or, or justification is actually a spiritual accounting term. What it means is this. That when a person responds to the grace initiative of Jesus, when a person steps over that line of faith and trusts God more than she trusts herself, more than he trusts himself, God does some spiritual accounting in that moment. It's an instantaneous thing that when that person chooses to follow Christ, in that moment, God moves our spiritual condition out of the liabilities column into the assets column. Because they have placed their faith in Christ, the righteousness of Christ is traded for the sin of that person. And so now it is the righteousness of Christ that is credited to our account. And God sees now not somebody who is distant, not somebody who is removed from him by their sin, but someone who has been restored and reconciled into that relationship that was, that was ruptured by their sin. And so now the Bible says that in Christ, because of the grace of God, God has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. He remembers it no more. Think about that for a second. We're talking about a perfect, almighty God who chooses to remember it no more. But it cost. It cost him the death burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who justifies by his grace. We are justified by grace alone that he was offered as a sacrifice of atonement. Now stick with me for a second because it's imperative that we understand the sacrifice of atonement that Jesus was is the fulfillment of everything that had happened in the nation of Israel prior to Jesus's earthly ministry. This goes all the way back to Leviticus chapter 16. When God tells Moses, when he gives Moses the law, the Ten Commandments and the laws of worship, he institutes a national day of atonement for Israel. That is, that's what's known as Yom Kippur. It is the holiest day on the Jewish calendar. And on this day, God said that the high priest of Israel on one day out of a calendar year, on Yom Kippur, the high priest would go into the holiest room in the temple only on this day in order to offer sacrifice for the sins of Israel. 
This would begin as he would sacrifice a bull for his family's sins, for his personal sins. He had to be clean and atoned for before he could offer sacrifices for the people of Israel. And so after the bull had been sacrificed, then he would bring in two goats that had been specially chosen for this day. And there would be a sacred lot casting. They would cast lots. One goat would be used as a sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel. His blood would be sprinkled on the altar just like the, bull had been, the bull's blood had been sprinkled on the altar. But the other goat, after the sacrifice of the goat there in the Holy of Holies, the other goat, the priest would pray and lay his hands over the head of this goat and spiritually pray intercessory prayer for the sins of Israel. He would confess all the sin, all of the evil, all of the rebellion that Israel had in them. And then this goat would be driven out from the camp into the wilderness. This is where we get the term, the scapegoat. This goat would carry symbolically and spiritually the sins of Israel out into the wilderness, removing those sins from the nation of Israel. It's an amazing picture, but that's all it was. It was a picture. It was, it was a ritual. It was a liturgy that was ultimately pointing toward the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It was a picture that would point Israel in faith to that day when Jesus would ultimately fulfill every law, every word of the prophets, when Jesus would go to the cross and become sin for you. He became my sin so that anyone who would believe in him would follow him. And so it is in Jesus that grace and truth are ultimately and perfectly reconciled. Grace and truth are ultimately and perfectly and only in Christ synthesized. But it's, it's not just theology. It's not just what you think about God. It's also something that Jesus lived out in every single day of his earthly ministry some 2,000 years ago. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 8, the Bible records a critical moment in the life of Jesus. One of my favorite moments recorded in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 8, the Pharisees, those kind of self-appointed watchdogs of the religious set. The Pharisees were folks that were all truth and no love. The Pharisees devised their most diabolical, devious plan yet to try and trap Jesus. And you can almost hear their, their motives when they begin this exchange with Jesus. Because the Bible says in John chapter 8 that they, they took this woman that they had caught literally in the act of adultery. They took this woman and they threw her at Jesus' feet. And then they said very sarcastically, Rabbi, good teacher, what should we do with her? Because the law of Moses says that for her sin, we should stone her to death. But you have talked about forgiveness of sins and grace. What do you say? So you, you see that they think they've got Jesus trapped on the horns of a dilemma. And Jesus, the Bible says Jesus did something really interesting. He just kind of stooped down and doodled in the dirt a little bit. I would give anything to know what he drew in the dirt that day. But they kept pressing him. They kept, they kept pushing him. And here's how John tells the story in Verse eight, he says, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and he said, all right, 
but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. In some translations, the Bible says that Jesus looked at her and he said, woman, where are your accusers? Has anyone condemned you? That term woman is a term of respect, a term of, a term of endearment. It wasn't like Jesus went, woman, where are you? He was like, it was actually a term of respect for this woman who, who was standing there in her shame and her guilt. And isn't it fascinating that the Pharisees did not bring her accomplice? Last time I checked, the sin of adultery is a team sport. You, you don't do that by yourself. But they only brought the woman. And then Jesus. Jesus speaks the truth in love. He says, I don't condemn you. He says in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, he says, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save the world. He says, neither do I go and sin no more. Love, I'm not here to condemn you, and I love you too much to leave you where you are. Go and sin no more. Truth, perfectly captured, perfectly expressed in the person of Jesus. John Newton is not exactly a household name. Some of you may know the name John Newton, but I would venture to guess most of us do not. He was a 1700s clergyman in England. But before he became a clergyman, he lived a really colorful life, and not in the fun way. His mother passed away when he was seven years old from tuberculosis. By the age of 11, he had already gone to sea with his ship captain father. When his father retired, he continued the family tradition and became a sailor, taking odd jobs before he was ultimately captured and impressed into service in the Royal Navy. In the 18th century, this was a very common practice in Great Britain. The, the Navy of England was their power around the world, and they needed sailors. They needed warm bodies to, to populate the Navy, and so they would many times capture people and just go, you're now a sailor. And they were effectively slaves on ships around the world. John Newton was one of these sailors. He was ultimately sold to a ship captain who turned him into a slave for his African mistress. His father asked another ship captain friend of his on his journeys into Africa, could you find my boy? And on the way home, John Newton was on a ship, the ship's name was the Greyhound. And on the way back to England from Africa, this ship was caught in the middle of a horrific storm. And in the middle of this storm, John Newton says he despaired of his life. And he cried out to God. And he said, God save me both from this storm and spiritually. And for the rest of his life, John Newton marked that day, March the 10th, as his spiritual birthday. He continued as a sailor for some years, 
eventually rising to the rank of a captain. And despite his newfound faith, he continued in the slave trade, but he tried to work within the confines of the slave trade in England to promote the life of God amongst his sailors and the slaves that they traveled. Finally, his faith convicted him of the evil of slavery and he became one of the most ardent, outspoken critics and voices for abolition in England. Now, you may not know the story of John Newton, but I promise you, you do know the hallmark, the calling card of John Newton's life. Because John Newton was the man who wrote the song, the hymn, Amazing Grace. So when this former slave trader, this former slave himself begins the words of that hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. A wretch like me. That's not just poetic license that John Newton pulled out of the air. He knew it. He lived it. He understood that his sins did not deserve the amazing grace of God. It was also John Newton who wrote that last part. Not the last verse, but those, those words that says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." It, it's grace that opened my eyes and my heart and my mind to the reality of my sin, to the reality that I am broken before God. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." "'Twas grace my fears relieved." was grace, it was grace, the hour I first believed. Grace tells the truth. Grace tells the truth in love. I want to ask you for a moment if you would bow your head. You may be watching online, you may be here in the room, but in this moment, I would just ask you this question. Have you learned, have you opened yourself up to the grace of God and learned to fear the consequence, the ultimate payoff of your sin? It's a gracious God who makes us aware of our need for grace. It's an act of grace that opens our eyes and ears to that reality. Because remember, grace means unearnable, unmerited favor. And so if it's unearnable, that means I can do nothing to make God, to move God to give me his amazing grace. He's already done it by his initiative. As a church, the, the ordained vehicle of amazing grace, as a church, 
If you've never personally responded to that grace initiative, we wanna give you the opportunity to do that right now, to pray right where you are, to pray a prayer of beginning, to receive and to live in and live out that grace, that love, that truth. Just pray right where you are, just silently, something like this. Just say in your own words, silently, Jesus, I need you. I need your grace. And so I confess my sin. All of it, holding nothing back. You know it all anyway. But I give you my heart, my life, and I will follow you from this moment forward. Jesus, thank you. And I pray this prayer in your name. For just a moment, I want to ask you to remain just in this moment of prayer. Heads bowed, our eyes closed. But if that was your prayer, this is the greatest day of your life. Just like John Newton could point back to that moment in the storm, you will always be able to point back to this moment and say, that was my spiritual birthday. And so as a church, it's our privilege, it's our responsibility to help with what's next, to encourage, to equip. And so I wanna just begin that process, if you would, as our heads are bowed, if that was your prayer, would you just quietly raise your hand? Quietly but unmistakably, raise your hand above your head and just keep it there for a second. And know that as a church, we honor that and celebrate it with you. Our family tradition around here is that you can go ahead and put your hands down, but we're gonna put our hands together and tell you welcome home. Welcome home.